0: open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 119 verses 33 through 40, 33 through 40 this morning. As we dig into the word, as we prepare our hearts to come to the table, we never do this without this. There's always the proclamation of the gospel and the digging into the word Before we come to the table, um, this is not some sort of uh, Christian talisman or anything here, but it it goes hand in hand with the proclamation of the gospel. It goes hand in hand with the deep things of the word. Um, It is the word that nourishes us spiritually, and then it is confirmed in the work of God's grace and Christ's sacrifice as we come to the table. So if you were able, would you stand with me as we dig into the word of God? Heavenly Father, come upon us with your Holy Spirit and open our eyes, open our hearts and our minds, that we would understand what your word says, that we would live it out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe thy law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of thy commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to thy testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in thy ways. Establish thy word to thy servant as that which produces reverence for thee. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for thine ordinances are good. Behold, I long for thy precepts. Receive me. Through thy righteousness this is God's inspired word for us today so please be seated Presbyterians have a, uh, a history of being uh, say education snobs when it comes to the, the ordained clergy. there was a time back in the 17 and early 1800s, when you could not get on your horse and ride out to the frontier to preach the gospel unless you had your doctor of divinity from Princeton Theological. Uh, then you were fit to go out and to preach the gospel. Uh, we and, and Christianity in general uh, and, and it has a history of the importance of learning and of education and of being able to grasp um, what scripture says. So Christianity and learning has gone hand in hand for many, many generations. Wherever the gospel has gone, education has gone, literacy has increased, institutions of higher education have flourished and popped up as well. In fact, of the first 108 colleges in the United States, 106 of them were started either on the foundation of the Christian faith by believers or specifically to train ministers for the gospel ministry. Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Princeton, once all had very rich Christian foundations in history. The first president of New York's Columbia University, which was known first known as King's College, was a missionary from England to the United States, part of the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts. We just call them missionaries now. I had a title then, okay? The Church of England established the College of William and Mary. Dutch reformers and revivalists founded Queens College, which later became Rutgers University. Brown University was started by the Baptists. And with the exception of Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania, which has some ties but not to the extent that the others, um, some branch of Christian the Christian church has established pretty much every um, institution of higher learning Prior to the Revolutionary War, and 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 ongoing, um, my alma mater, Washington and Jefferson College, uh, was founded by three ministers, uh, Presbyterian ministers, uh, McMillan, uh, Dodd, and some other guy. Smith, there it is, Smith. McMillan's the only one I care about, okay, McMillan. And he was a DD, a doctor of divinity, and he's one of those guys that came out of Princeton and rode out to the frontier where civilization stopped, and he said, this is where I'm going to start to plant churches. And then he was a circuit rider on a horse. So Dr. McMillan traveled on a horse uh, just to preach the gospel. In the United Kingdom, the earliest university-type establishment really was known as the college. It was established by a Celtic preacher in about 500 A.D. Oxford University was established by various religious orders. Um, Christian leaders established Cambridge University in the 1200s. St. Andrews, Scotland's oldest university, was founded principally for the teaching and education of theological issues to train ministers. University of Edinburgh had a thoroughly evangelical beginning. It was founded by Presbyterians. Unfortunately, all the schools I have mentioned have pretty much pitched out their theological roots. Yes, some of those schools have divinity schools, but um, nothing as to, uh, to even compare as to when they began. Uh, they have pretty much gone the ways of secular society. But it's not just colleges and, and, and institutions of higher education that have sprung up as the gospel has gone forward too. Grammar schools to nurture the minds and, and hearts of children were started. And perhaps the most noteworthy example, and, and, and most of you will, will know some, some part of this story, is started by Robert Rakes and Thomas Stock, established the first Sunday school. You think, well, isn't that just part of church? Doesn't everybody have Sunday school? No, there was a time when all you did was worship and then the minister would travel to your house and catechize your children. That's not a vaccine, Uh, at least not for here, but maybe for here, but to catechize your children. And and, and this was started in Gloucester in 1780. Now, Rakes and Stock has become the the recognized originators of Sunday school, and they led clergy and lay people to establish other schools throughout England. And and so by 1800, there were 200,000 children enrolled in Sunday school. And by 1850, just 50 years later, there were 2 million children enrolled in Sunday school. And they were organized to teach reading, writing, arithmetic, and the catechism to children. Because the children were growing up without any education. And this was a great opportunity not only to teach them to read and write, but to teach them to read and write so they could read the Bible. So they could understand the things of faith. So that they could hear the gospel preached. Now the Christian faith is pretty much universally an educated faith and believers are expected to take this book or the ones that you have at home and to read it yourself and to study it yourself how many great resources do we have at our fingertips today i mean you can go down the just go to amazon or go to the christian book depository go to wherever you want and you can buy Volumes and volumes of deep and rich and, and and fulfilling theological challenge and education so you can know more and more about God's word. That doesn't mean you you have to be literate to believe. There are plenty of illiterate people who have believed the gospel, they have heard the message, but the Lord expects us to get off the milk and get into the meat. He expects us to move away from all that uh, you know third, third grade Sunday school. Daniel and the lions, then. David and Goliath. Um, what else is there? Jesus walks on the water. We're supposed to move on from that. And we're supposed to have a deeper and richer knowledge. It is a feast for us. And it is here. All we have to do to consume it is what? Pick it up and read it. Okay? Pray that the Holy Spirit will open our eyes to it and we will feast upon it. It is here for us. The Lord has given it to us so that we may grow and we may live it okay not just so we can go oh man do you know how many degrees i (laughs) have okay i am so theologically in in tune with the word i'm so smart i just can't stand myself well neither can anybody else okay (laughs) but we're there so we can live it we know the doctrine of the word so we can live it that's the whole point of it you know, as I said before, I got, a, I got a Christmas card from some guy and he wrote, don't keep the faith. He said, what is this? He said, give it away. Give it away. That's what you're supposed to. You know, give the faith away. So this is where we come to on Psalm 119 in this passage here. The psalmist lays out for us the importance of understanding the word of God. Give me understanding of your word. Why? So that I may keep it so that i may keep it live it with my whole heart so in 33 to 40 we're celebrating the in a sense the importance of the word of god and he just doesn't say the word he says your statutes your law your commandments your testimonies your ways your promise your rules your righteousness it is god's so you can't separate god and his word they come together. God reveals himself in his word to us. What, what do we need to know about God? It's here. What do I need to know about Christ? It is here. Now, yes, you can look at the the world around you, as, as Romans chapter 1 says. We are without excuse if we look at the created world and say, there's no God. No. You look at the created world and you should be able to come to the conclusion that God exists. But you can't come to the conclusion of, about Jesus Christ. His sinless life, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, and salvation only in Christ except through the revelation of God's word. That is where it is laid out for us. That is where we are commanded to go and to dig into it. We are to study God's word not so we can know about God, but so we can know God. Not so we can know about him, but so that we can know him. There are five things that we're going to focus on today as we we look through this passage. They kind of come out at us very straightforward. Remember, the whole theme of Psalm 119 is basically the word of God, his law, what he teaches. And here he says, the first one I want you to understand is that if we are going to understand the law, it takes grace. To understand the law of the Lord, it takes grace. Now, the law of the Lord as it's, it's laid out for us today would be the Torah. It's the instruction that the, the God has given to his people. And here it is translated word. That's what they had there at, at, when, when the psalmist is writing. But the prayer that is, is that God would teach him his statutes, that God would teach him his word. And it's repeated throughout, throughout the psalm. Teach me your statutes, Lord, so I may keep your law. Lead me in the path of your commandments. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and turn my eyes to looking at you. Confirm in your servant your promises. It goes on and on and on and on. So over and over, the psalmist is praying that that God would seal in his heart his word so that he might keep it. And he does that because salvation and the Christian life are impossible without grace. And we know that. I mean, this is... We're looking back at the psalm through the New Testament times and and through the the New Testament, and we understand that you can't live these things out with God's grace. You can live a moral life and an ethical life and a decent life and be a really really nice person, but you're not living those things to the glory of God. You're not living them out of a heart that has been changed, a heart that cries out for the things of the Lord, a heart that desires to serve him with all that you are. That takes grace. That takes salvation, a changed life. So the psalmist is asking the Lord to provide him these types of things. Understanding, leading, the inclination of his heart, focusing his eyes on what is right, turning them away from what is wrong. I mean, just look at our society. How many options are there for our eyes to focus on something that is not appropriate? Again and again, the images come up to us. Billboards, television, Internet, just, the list goes on and on and on. There are plenty of opportunities for our eyes to focus on what is not right and not just and not beautiful. He says, turn my eyes to the things that are beautiful, to your word. And the psalmist realizes that only God can enable his heart and therefore determine his actions for obedience. Only God can can enable his heart to do these things. And once the Lord has enabled his heart, then the psalmist has the capability to live in obedience to their Heavenly Father. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Look at verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. See, what he's, what he's after here is, he's, is it's that, that hymn we say, you know, take my life and let it be. Take my life and let it be always help me only consecrated consecrated. yeah that's it okay that's what he wants he wants his heart to be all to the lord all to the lord don't let me focus on the things or or desire anything more in this world than i desire you now are there things in the world we desire yes there are do we desire them more than the lord if we do we've got trouble We have to desire the Lord more than anything in this world. We have to love the Lord more than anything in this world. There are things in this world. There are people in this world. There's stuff in this world we love. Do you love it more than the Lord? you got a problem if you do. Otherwise, the Lord is first and foremost. That's the prayer of the psalmist. He wants to keep the word in his heart as well as in his life. Okay? It's not just to know it. And we'll look at this more in a minute remember what Jesus said Um, he said if you you've heard it said do not kill but if you hate your brother if you're angry with your brother you've done what done in your heart already do not commit adultery but if you look lustfully at a woman you've in your heart you've created you've committed adultery okay it is a heart issue that the psalmist is after I, I want to know the word I want to have it in my life Your grace must fill me so that it comes out, so that it comes out in my life. The second thing, to do this, we need spiritual discernment, spiritual discernment if we're going to live the Christian life. Now, it's interesting that the psalmist does not pray for knowledge. He does not pray for knowledge. Now, now, remember what? When, when we first started, I said, all oh, the Presbyterians have a history of being educated, probably beyond good measure. Um, I've, I've met plenty of academics, theological academics in my, in my life who knew a lot about God, but they didn't give much evidence that they knew God. Okay? You can get books, you can get volumes, you can fill your mind with all the information you can gram in there about God. But if this is the same, you're just going to be one smart pagan, and that's it, and that's it. Charles Simeon, who I've quoted before, oh, some 120 years ago, wrote, Spiritual discernment essentially differs from a mere exercise of our intellectual powers. A man may have the richest stores of human knowledge and the most discriminating faculty in the branches of science and yet be under the dominion of his own lusts and passions. But spiritual knowledge is always accompanied with gracious dispositions. Spiritual knowledge is always accompanied with gracious dispositions. You know it. If it's true, you live it. Grace will flow from what you say, from what you do. It will flow from the attitudes. It will flow from all the things of your life. Now, we're not talking about hearing... um, When we talk about spiritual discernment, we're not talking about going into your room by yourself and hearing some new revelation from the Lord. We're talking about studying the word here. It is that he will reveal himself to us. It is here in God's word. It is here when the word is open to us, when our hearts are moved to willing and obtainable obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord does not call us to obedience that we cannot achieve. I want you to understand that. You think, oh, man, the stuff that the Lord is calling me to, it's just beyond me. No, it's not beyond you. It's there. In fact, it is easily obtainable if you're willing to put yourself aside, to do the things that the Lord says. It's just as, uh, do I want to do it? And that's that's really what it comes down to so often. Do we have the will to live out the reality that the Lord has made in our hearts? So our desire cannot be here for just intellectual knowledge. We want our minds to be given spiritual understandings as well so that our desires are right and so that leads us to a gracious way of life. He wants the word to have its own way in our life. Another song. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Hold on. Oh, my spirit. Absolute. Absolute sway. I'm glad you're all here today because I'm having a blank here. Absolute sway. Now, now, that's the words of the psalmist, but that's what we want. We want the Lord and his word to have absolute sway over our lives. And if you don't want that, then you're, you're missing out. Okay, You are missing out if you don't want the Lord and his word to have absolute sway over your life. We want the word of God to produce fruit in our life. And it's possible for us to know a great deal about God and about his word and not know him. We have to know him. We have to be broken before him so that he can build us up the third thing verse 35 make me walk in the path of your commandments for i delight in it to delight in his word to delight in his word very fact that the psalmist prays that prayer is evidence that the spirit's work is at work the spirit is at work in his heart his desire is to delight in His Word. How many things are there in this world to delight in? Ooh, there's a whole bunch. Okay. What is the most important thing to delight in? It's right here. This should be our our greatest delight. Should be here in God's Word, where the very essence of the Christian life is laid out for us how we are to live it. See, God wants the Christian to have a full, joyful obedience. This is not when He's You know, we are not chaining ourselves to something that is awful, something that is burdensome, something that is dry, something that is just, you know, that traditionally some people say, God's up there just waiting to crush me when I have fun. Okay. Well, maybe your fun is wrong and you're paying the price for your fun. Okay. Maybe that's a possibility. But the word says that there is great joy here there this word god's word should be the delight of our hearts you know it is not the, the word of god is not repressive it is not does not subject us to something inappropriate it, it is it is not stuck in a moral and ethical world of 2000 or 3000 years ago it is living it is sharper than what two edged sword two edges cuts both ways Okay, You want to dig into the Word, you can find the joy, but you also have to be ready for it to pierce your heart and go, oh, I don't hate that passage. I'm just not going to read that passage anymore. It calls me to stuff I don't want to do. But that's what we have to do. We have to go there. We have to examine ourselves and find delight in the Word of God. And I want to tell you, the reason we hate certain passages is because we love certain sins and those passages are going to speak against those sins and the only way to fight the most challenging sins in our lives is to have a greater love and a greater delight i delight in this sin over here and, and you know what i'm going to keep doing it till i find something better so something i delight more in what must I delight more in? Right here. Okay, I, this, God calls me to delight in His Word. Um, Thomas Chalmers, who was a Scottish minister, uh, professor of theology, 1800s, he had this little phrase The best defense against, against sin is the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. I got this sin that I love. How do I get it out of my life? I expel it with a new affection. A new and greater and richer affection, which would be the things of God's word, the things of the Lord. That's how I get that. I find a greater delight. And the greatest delight I can have is here in God's word. Delight in God and in his word is the very essence of Christianity. Fourth thing. What's the goal of the psalmist's love for and delight in the God's word? His goal is fellowship. Look at verse 38. It is fellowship with the Lord. Establish thy word to thy servant as that which produces reverence for thee. I want to know you. I want to delight in you. I want to have fellowship with you. Uh, I, I want to know the Lord. I want to know the Lord. Why? It produces reverence for thee. Well, what is reverence here? Reverence, Another. you may have a different translation there, it, that produces fear. The fear of the Lord. This is not God is going to crush me type fear. This is the fear of awe and of reverence before the Lord. Yeah, this is the, the, we might only almost say it's, it's fear to such an extent that it is affection for the Lord. It is the affection that maybe a son has for a father, that that their heart is drawn to them. Do they hold them in respect and awe? Yes. Uh, To the extent that Calvin says we we should hold awe and reverence of the Lord, um, to the extent that we would not wish to offend him by sin as if there were no hell. Uh, Understand We don't want to sin because it will offend God. That's the fear and the love and respect that we should have for the Lord. Because every sin is an abomination before him. Every time we fall short, we offend the Lord. But yet he is gracious. The psalmist, if I summed up this this section, the psalmist wants the Lord himself. The psalmist wants the Lord himself. He doesn't want just knowledge. He wants to know the word and he wants to know God. He wants that intimacy with the Lord that only comes through grace and only comes when the Lord opens our eyes and our hearts to it. The Lord, therefore, must give of himself to the psalmist. And our last one, verse 38, establish thy word to thy servant, confirm it to me as that which produces reverence. So we are confirming it, to to us and this is what we go back to when when i prayed for pastor andrew if, if you've read if you if you got that email and you looked at what came out uh, uh in the prayer guide th- there were three passages today acts 4 29 to 30 lord consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Isaiah 60. Darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. In Ephesians chapter 6. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. The last portion here is what we call, we pray God's word back to him. These are the promises that the Lord has made to us pray those promises back to him it is what he has already said he will do it is what he said his character is like he said these are the things that i promised to give you okay lord i'm going to go to pray i'm going to go to pray for andrew these are the things that you have promised for your servants fulfill them that is our prayer fulfill what you have promised pleading god's promises back to him so when you come to the word and you go i i I, I still know what to do. I don't know what to read. I just don't have any words to say. Go to the Psalms. Pray a psalm. Insert your name into the psalm. Insert your circumstances into the psalm. Pray God's word back to him. These are his promises to us. What kind of things has he promised? There's forgiveness. Lord, forgive me. Confirm your promises that you've made to me, that you Christ has given his life for me. Lord, that I may know the joy that you call me to have in Christ Jesus. That I may know the power of the risen Lord, because he has made these promises to us. To hold you in awe and to worship you more, because those are his promises. Those who love me, who are called according to my purposes. That's why it's so important to plead God's promises back to him. When you have nothing to say to the Lord, the word is full for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, we read this, it is it's more than knowledge. Yes, you want us to know your word. You want us to study it. You want us to, to consume it and move from the milk to the meat and, and feast on, on the deep and rich things that are there that we might grow and live them out, Lord. That we might declare the things of Christ in our, in our gentleness, in our compassion, in our uncompromising living according to your word. But Lord, you, you also have made promises to us. Comfort is here in your word when we have nothing to say, we can come to you with your own words and plead them back to you and know that you hear us and know your care for us and know your promises in our lives. Lord, the whole purpose of understanding your word is to live it. So we pray, Lord, that our minds become full of your word, that we order our lives so that we have time to study, that we have time to dig in and to read and to pray, to be silent before you, to meditate upon your word. And then, Lord, open doors for us to live out what we find, to live out in acts of graciousness, in acts of mercy, to declare the things of Christ boldly that others may have their hearts and minds and lives changed by the grace of jesus christ and it is in his name that we pray amen let's stand together and sing hymn number 631 fill my cup board we'll sing verses one and two prior to the lord's supper and the third afterwards let's stand together and sing hymn number 631